0: Hi everyone. Uh, good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Janet Brown from Harvard University to the University of Sydney and the Sydney Ideas Series tonight. Tonight's event is a Sydney, uh, Sydney Ideas Arts Matters Forum organised by the Faculty of Arts and it aims to engage the wider community with the ideas of visiting academics through a conversation with our own academics. The format for tonight will be a 40-minute in-conversation with our panel, and will be followed by a question and answer session. We have a handheld mic, which I'll pass around for questions. As we are recording the event for podcast on the university website, we will ask you to use the microphone for your questions. I'd now like to welcome Professor Alison Bashford. Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney and just returned from her position as Chair of Australian Studies, Harvard University. Alison will introduce our panel and chair the forum tonight. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Meredith, and a very warm welcome to everybody on this slightly chilly evening. Uh, Please relax, we're going to have a very, I hope, enjoyable and insightful evening of discussion with these terrific historians and and Darwin experts and biography biographers, biography writers. So we all know the book behind us, uh, in front of you, the great book of the 19th century, arguably the best known book of the 19th century, followed by this great book of the 20th century, (laughs) published what year Janet Brown Nin- 1995 1995 and then in the 21st century this second volume by Janet Brown of Darwin called subtitled the power of place and of course also in the 21st century the wonderful book that many will, of you will know by Ian McCallman here on my left Darwin's Armada Janet Brown is Aramont Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University, where Janet Brown is also chair of department. After degrees in zoology and in history of science, Janet published The Secular Arc: Studies in the History of Biogeography. And subsequently, of course, she published the two-volume biography of Charles Darwin that is so well known and I'm sure many of you have read again and again and she 's also interestingly, and I will be asking you about this, Professor Brown, author of a study called uh, darwin 's The Origin of Species: a Biography and we 'll also hear tonight about janet 's current exciting projects. Professor Ian McCalman is research professor in the Department of History at the University of Sydney, my colleague. Uh, Working backwards from Ian's uh, great works, we have, of course, Darwin's Armada, Four Voyages and the Battle for the Theory of Evolution, published last year, 2009. And before that, another biography of sorts, The Seven Ordeals of Count Colliostro, uh, republished and translated many times. And uh, Ian McCallman's first book, Radical Underworld, Prophets, Revolutionaries, and Pornographers in London. And Ian, of course, is also the, the, uh, the editor of the very important Oxford Companion to the Romantic Age. So we have great 18th and 19th century experts at the table here, uh, two of the great Darwin experts writing currently. So, so Janet Brown, perhaps can, we can start with you, and you might explain to us how you came to this fellow Charles Darwin.
2: Well, to be sure, there was no need for a new biography of Darwin when I began my biography of Darwin. I I came to Darwin as a zoologist, and as you must know that Darwin is still a hero figure to zoologists, biologists generally. So when I was a student, I was very interested in what he did and took the opportunity to move into history of science which I had no idea existed when I was an undergraduate uh, and became extremely devoted to Darwin
1: gave him a large slice of my life actually through then So you came to Darwin through zoology rather than through history Yes, through, through the sciences do you, think that's, do you think that is the common route to Darwin for his biographers? I do think
2: it is common for his biographers I th- I think a lot of the mid 20th century biographies of Darwin were written by biologists who were very keen to seek out the roots of their own subject and, in an interesting way, perhaps to seek out some of the things that drew them to biology. Darwin's quite an important ancestor figure for a lot of scientists. And that was true for me. I think it's true for people today. Certainly during the anniversary year, we saw it quite a bit as well.
1: Mm. And, and you, am I, am I right that you, uh, in terms of your research work, that was first through the, the Darwin Correspondence Project, is that correct? Well, I, I did do a PhD in a history faculty
2: on Darwin, but that was, in the way of a lot of PhDs, a kind of passport to a job. And the job that I got was wonderful. I was so thrilled. I went to work on a largish project that was publishing all Darwin's correspondence from Cambridge, Cambridge University Library in England. And I, you can't imagine what fun that was. It was just wonderful to work with letters, original letters. Every day you opened up a 19th century letter feel the paper, you could see the ink. It was just terrific for a historian who's interested in material culture to have that kind of engagement with the sources.
1: There there is a visceral pleasure, isn't Mm. there, to archival Mm. research that that only is secret amongst historians. (laughs) Ian McCalman, tell us how you came across Darwin.
3: Well, actually it was also via science... Although I'm not in any way a scientist. It, uh, it, the actual kind of occasion when I thought I might investigate, writing a book about Darwin, I was in a plateau in Western Arnhem Land, um, deserted except for one Aboriginal who's, who lived there, was the last person to grow up there. And I was with a geomorphologist, uh called John Chappelle, might be known to some of you, great a great uh, scientist. And we were sitting around the campfire talking about inspirational people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he talked about Darwin. He's a geologist and a geographer, um, a man of... A, a Renaissance man. And he started then also to talk about, well, it wasn't only Darwin, you know. He said, there, you know, there were these other people who came, you know, his disciples, his people who worked with him who came to this part of the world and he mentioned T.H. Huxley I recalled since I'd done my honours thesis on T.H. Huxley that I should have remembered that and then he mentioned Hooker uh, as well and I thought what an extraordinary um, sort of troika and then Wallace who did not come to Australia but came to our region Uh, so I started to think about these for and initially, in a in a curious just out of curiosity, to see just how entangled they might have been, and so that's how the the interest in Darwin was born. I mean, my real passion for Darwin derives from a person about five a yard away. In that, I have read um, and reread the biography, uh, Voyaging and Power of Place, which I think is one of the most brilliant biographies ever written and uh, an absolutely inspirational book. So I was kind of in love with Darwin um, as an amateur, you know, just as a historian. But it was when this idea of these four people in our part of the world came, presented to me by John Chappelle, that it, that it kind of became the germ of a book.
1: So, so Janet, you write at the beginning of the first volume of Voyaging that that uh, Darwin's ideas were obviously uh, one of the most, if not the most, spectacular ideas of the Victorian period. But in fact, as a person, Darwin was rather less than spectacular. How how did that drive your biography writing? Well, I just, like other biographers of Darwin... um, Um,
2: scholars of Darwin's studies, it's the most extraordinary thing how vivid and powerful Darwin's mind was and um, of course we don't have it now but the Origin of Species that was up there is both an exciting but difficult book for a lot of people how somebody could think that up, work it through, write it supported for the whole of his life, and yet be such a humble, quiet, retiring sort of person, which we get from his very charming autobiography. Uh, His correspondence is of great interest in showing a personality of of someone who is really rather unassuming. And his own self-estimation was of... uh, of a child or a boy, a schoolboy, a university student who wasn't particularly talented. So there's an inherent contrast there that is terribly interesting in the personal regard. And we all know people who are really brilliant and very unassuming. And that was the kind
1: of figure that intrigued me. Very much. And does that mean, in terms of th- addressing you as a writer as well as a historian, as a biographer, does that mean that the, um, the, the characters, the people around Darwin were especially important to write up and drive what was happening? I mean, many of the same people, of course, you write about yeah. that Ian does, Huxley and Wallace uh, and Hooker. Do they become important in a biography of someone like Darwin because because in a way, they are, they are strangely livelier, livelier characters, right?
2: Yes. Um, do you know, just responding to something Ian said a little earlier, Ian's book is one I would have loved to have written. Well, <laughs> it's I'm glad good... you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great idea to have the four people united by their sea travels and then rather curiously, coming together in their later lives, uniting to support a particular theory, the theory of evolution. So Ian's idea is a really smart idea. It works extremely well. And in my form, formula, formulation, I, I tried to do something of the same to show Darwin in his context that other people loved him very much they liked him they supported him they looked after him they wrote him funny letters they went to stay for weekends so that as an individual Darwin was supported by a whole bunch of people his family his wife his children and his friends and people who he never met who he corresponded with all around the world so there's something there in that individual that was magnetic charismatic that we try to capture as writers and I think Ian's captured it and I hope I captured it too.
3: Janet can I ask you something because it really intrigued me the two volumes uh, of Darwin's life are very different because Darwin's life was so different so you had to write a, a book about a person in two genres the first genre is much more like my Darwin's of mind. It's it's the swashbuckling Darwin. The Darwin of an extraordinary, vivid adventures and and wonderful exotic places and strange um, uh, and really quite haunting experiences. And then the second Darwin is the Darwin of the mind. um, A man who's almost a recluse. So you, you had to do one was a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of romance, I suppose, and the other is a, is a work of the mind. is an intellectual history. Mm. How did you well, manage these two? <laughs> <laughs> it
2: took a long time. <laughs> I hadn't meant to write a two-volume biography. I had got a contract for one volume, which was about all I could contemplate at the time, and then I had been... This is a long answer, I'm sorry... I had been writing in such an expanding expanded form that when I sent my first six or seven chapters to my editor he said, this isn't going to hack it. You've either got to write shorter or we've got to review this. So I was given the opportunity to review it and went back to him and said, how about two volumes? And I would put the private Darwin in the first volume the young man who developed himself into the person who wrote The Origin of Species and then the second volume would be the public Darwin the Darwin who takes that theory out and about and who becomes uh, almost destroyed by his own book so there are two very different kinds of person there, before and after and it's the book that's the
1: point of the whole thing. So, yeah. I, I was struck by the, the way you have both periodized Darwin's, Darwin's life. So, Ian, your wonderful book is in many ways the, a backstory. To the Linnaean Society moment, do you think of it that way? So the back—that's uh, how I read it—a backstory to the famous moment where where Wallace and Darwin's work is read simultaneously, uh, and everything that worked up to that. And in some ways, that well, that is the dividing line, isn't it, Janet, between your first volume and and your second volume. So, as builders of books, was that was that periodizing of Darwin um, obvious or or not all lives not all lives of course lives. pan out with such in, in, in such divided ways. Was yes. that something that was that that, that 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 appeared very obviously to to both of you? To me certainly Darwin's life did fall into that first
2: stage of very active exploration coming back to England and marrying and having children and doing research and then being startled into publishing and that's a big moment that Ian discusses in his book rather well it, it is a natural break if, if one's allowed to write two volumes in a biography and it's, it's unusual then that's a good place I could have chosen his marriage but that in the personal sense, of course, a marriage is a much bigger thing in a life. But I chose to make the book because this was a book about a thinker, a scientist, and even Darwin himself says his whole life was given to the origin of species and pushing it um, after it was published.
3: But so, in a sense, it's a similar kind of answer because the the three disciples i suppose that i'm that i'm writing about have quite separate lives I and mean, they do start to two of them start to join up um, prior to uh, at least one, at least Huxley's friendship with Darwin but it's really Darwin who brings them together it's the origin that is the magnet that draws these three people so that the first time that they're in a room, all th- all all of them, all three of them. It's with Darwin as well. Darwin is the magnet, and the uh, the, the, the 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 energy is the energy of that book, and it changes their lives um, as much as it changes Darwin's. And so he, he, it was a kind of natural point to to you know. I wish. In the book I'm writing at the moment, I had the same <laughs> <laughs> natural breaks. So. Perhaps, perhaps there is a second <laughs> volume. It must
1: have been quite hard, actually, to to to, to stop. I mean, because the story goes on in such interesting ways. That's so right. I mean, in some ways, that must have right. been quite difficult. Ian, somebody reviewed your amongst the many um, excellent reviews. Somebody reviewed your book along the lines of it being simultaneously. Uh, intricate portraiture and sublime landscape so was the and and I'm struck as well Janet by your subtitle the power of place and it seems to me that in these two books the contextualizing and the place aspect is really very significant for both of you perhaps perhaps Janet we might start with the subtitle
2: all right Ian's got Australia, though, to talk about, which is (laughs) wonderful. Um, I wanted to think about place very concretely in relation to Darwin. There are all kinds of sort of historical uh, movements which is emphasizing place, and I certainly wanted to pay tribute to those. But I also was very lucky in that Darwin, after all his travels, bought a house and stayed there. He became a barnacle in, in many ways. <laughs> and so the place really was expressed through his writings. His home became his laboratory. His garden became where he did a lot of his experiments. He received and wrote letters from his study, and that was where he wrote his books. So there's a very strong sense of place. You don't get him saying... I love southern england or romantic or, or make writing beautifully about particular parts of kent where he lived but there are one or two very evocative passages in the origin of species where we do feel that he is thinking about himself in his place uh, the last paragraph of the origin of species there is a grandeur in this view of life uh, the tangled bank there is actually a bank quite close to his home where he and his wife used to walk. So there, there are real places in that book. And he did feel that, well, I'm sorry, let's put that around another way. His work does emerge from a
1: genuine location. And that's why I was so interested in the word place. There were one or two tangled banks for Wallace as well, right?
3: There were, there were. Um, I guess my argument about, my answer about place, um, one element of it is what Janet and I were talking about earlier and that is the ship. Um, I had a a rather horrific experience on a ship, uh, the Endeavour, 18th century reenactment earlier in my life. Um, And one of the things, of course... That did, that six week reenactment under 18th century conditions, it made me aware of how extraordinary the space of the ship and it traveling through sea and coming to land, how extraordinary formative it is, how it takes over your whole life and molds you. Um, It's inescapable. And so when I came to re-read Voyaging and you capture that very very strongly and also you capture the fact that seems to me so vividly that Darwin when he gets into, the, into Down House recreates the ship recreates the conditions of the ship almost as a way of recreating the incredible um, fertility of his work because on a ship you do get long, boring hours when you can work. And when he wasn't being sick, he was working frantically. But the other thing, I mean, the other two things, I think, that have made me very strongly aware, and it's kind of new awareness, I think, in in my work about place, one is um, simply as a migrant coming to Australia and uh, falling in love with landscapes in Australia and feeling them change you as a person that kind of autobiographical element inevitably feeds its way into your own work but also more recently I have been involved with film quite a lot Uh, not just this Darwin series but for five or six years I've been working with uh, an anthropological filmmaker trying to look at the way in which landscape shapes people Shapes their ideas, their personalities, and vice versa. So I have had this very strong sense of place, which you had in your title, you know, that this extraordinarily formative fact of place in Darwin, Dar- in the latter part yes. of Darwin's life.
2: So your places were ships which went other places, which is a wonderful motif. And my place was a house that became a ship. Yes. Yeah, and went nowhere. <laughs> From one place, Darwin could go everywhere by letters. Yes. Yes.
1: So on letters, Janet Brown, you've read all of them? No. You couldn't possibly. I don't think even Darwin read all of them. <laughs> what is, as someone who's read more than anybody else, I would hazard a guess, right? Maybe. As someone who has read more letters of Charles Darwin than anybody else on the planet, what don't you know? What, what is still a mystery to you about about Darwin? Oh, Having spent so much of your life with him yes. what, what, what would you like to know if we had dinner with him this evening? Well I would love to know why he was
2: unwell and that is something probably that Darwin himself could not tell us but it would be really interesting to say with, you know, how, how long did it Take and how many hours before you feel sick and all those kinds of medical questions that some of his friends did ask him and a lot of his friends did offer hypotheses as to what was his problem but that is something that historians will never be able to resolve because we can't ever really diagnose somebody from the past with absolute confidence so that's something I'd like to know
1: Ian?
3: Wow, that's such a good question, but a very, very testing one. Uh, I suppose I would like to know how tough Darwin was under the surface. That is to say, um, uh, Janet is absolutely right that this man is so diffident, so shy and so... Um, so likeable, so retiring um, that that you wonder how on earth it is that he is able to have pushed through uh, one of the most controversial and socially and politically and intellectually most controversial books in the history of mankind. And I think behind, underneath this was a kind of steely power. Um, It was not a power that he exercised over other people. I think it was a power Mm. he exercised over himself. But it's only a feeling. I have no idea. I'd love to have spent um, some time with him just to get a feeling of the person.
0: Yes.
2: But just like my question, he wouldn't have been able to answer your question. Or he would have been very english about it all yeah. and, 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 and said oh, oh, oh no yeah, surely not <laughs> but you're absolutely right there's real drive behind behind the
1: outside let's talk a little bit about about biography more generally and history of science more generally and pull out a little a little from from the focus on darwin it seems to me that, that, that beyond politicians, perhaps scientists in the past are the, are the objects or the subjects of, of not a few biographies. There are many biographies of scientists. Do you think they make particular kinds of biographical subjects... Or, or 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 not? I mean, is there something particular about writing the biography of, of a scientist that is unlike writing the biography of of some other generic generic category, mm-hmm. a politician, for example?
2: It's an excellent question, isn't it? And it ought to be relatively easy to answer, but I'm not sure that it is. I suppose the problem with science biographies is that there's science in them, and. <laughs> the, Not many people really want to engage with the issues that the figure in the book engaged with. So I suspect that a lot of people who write scientific biographies, myself included, are not really writing about the science. We're writing about what it is to be a scientist. What was it like to be Darwin, rather than trying to explain the nitty-gritty of the theories that engaged him. So I, I do feel that there are issues about science biography and that, and that probably the biggest issue is what do you do with the science? As an author, how do you handle the science?
1: Right, so, so, so how, do you actually, how do you actually portray the yes. expertise and the, yes. te- and the technicalities where the richness for the yes. person lies, yes. right? Yes. Ian McCummon?:
3: Yes, I think... I, um, I actually don't think there are a lot of good science biographies. Um, and one of the reasons I don't think there are is because it's so difficult to keep the three or four things that you have to do in balance. The first and foremost is what Janet says, and that is get the science right, and non scientists like me so often don't, um, or that, or they, I mean, they're attempting to make the science explicable. To 21st century readers who are generalists. So there's that aspiration. Um, at the same time, you want a scientist like Frank sitting there um, not to wince um, you know, all the way through the book. Uh, um, Frank here is uh, one of the great experts on Darwin, uh, Darwin in Australia, and, and is a um, geneticist himself. Um, And a biologist, but so he's one of my criterion of, you know, if if you can pull it off. So there's that problem, but there is another problem, I think, well, two other problems with science biography. Um, One of them is a lot of science uh, biography is just about the science, that is, it is written for scientists. Um, And so uh, it tends to exclude the social context. There again, you can get biographers, and I think there are uh, uh, some notable modern science biographers who are very, very obsessed with the context but tend to lose track of the central ideas. Um, and then there's a th- there's a third dimension, and the third dimension is the personal life. I mean, there is the, the broader social context, but there's also the ser- social life. There's Darwin... Uh, and his children, and Darwin, and his wife, and you know that's the subject of the, the movie Creation, which um, I've read the script. But I haven't seen it. Uh, have you seen it?
2: Yes, I have seen it. Has anyone else seen it? The movie. Is it distributed here? Yeah.
1: Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am ambivalent about it. Is there anyone connected to the film here? <laughs> no, 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 it's a genuine, we would invite conversation. No, okay.
3: There is in, a, in this town, in yes, Balmain. I wondered, that yes, so it was, was
1: scripted over here, wasn't it? Yes, yes. 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 Uh,
3: John Colley yes. in Balmain wrote the script, yeah.
1: Yes, I wonder whether John would be with yes. us. But, mate, can I ask a question about your book, Janet? Um, in the series Books That Shook the World... You call that book, Darwin's Origin of Species, a biography. Can you explain the, 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 the wonderful choice of title in that instance?
2: Well, unfortunately, there wasn't my title. It was a little book, tiny little book, and I was awfully glad to write it to reassure myself that I could write short things as well as long <laughs> things. You uh, won't have a picture of it, I don't think. will you we do. Okay. It it was the brainchild of a philosopher who had then turned editor, who put together a series of ten books that shook the world, ten great books, and wanted little accounts of each of those books. And the series has now run to about 20. And Darwin's book was the only one that was from a scientist, now, I could have imagined an, a, a complete another 20 with Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and all the rest of it. Darwin was the only scientist in his series. And he, the philosopher-editor wanted all of them to be called, whatever, whatever, a biography. So there was Marx's Das Kapital, a biography. And the idea was very simple, and we may get onto that later in the evening, the, the motif of a biography is extended to many things that are not people and the um, ships chemicals, pencils all, all sorts of things so it seemed a perfectly legitimate title to indicate that these little books were about the genesis the publication, the impact of a
1: particular title
2: and I thought that it was a
1: nice little series so Janet, tell us about your current work then and whether or how biography enters enters that project.
2: Alison <laughs> knows what I'm working on at the moment, which is a study of the animal species, the gorilla. And I am calling it informally a biography of the gorilla. And it opens up a lot of interesting issues, the kind of issues you might talk about over the third bottle of wine (laughs) how far can you apply this labelled biography to things that aren't human because gorillas, although they have emotions and family lives and all kinds of documents surrounding them we can't infer their intentions and it does seem to me that one of the essential things about About a biography, I I don't know, we might get into an argument about this, is that you try as an author to talk about the intentions of your subject. And you may not be right, but there's an element of hypothesis and creation and um, invention to bring these people alive in a biography that
1: is actually not possible to do with an animal so I'm sorry that was a rather philosophical answer I think it was a terrific answer tell tell us and I'm going to ask you as well Ian about about your current project but Janet tell us tell us a little about how about some of the gorillas that you that you've discovered and what some of their biographies actually are if you don't mind giving us a sneak preview of the yes (laughs) the the, next major work um, some of
2: As we all know, some animals become very well-known, some individual animals. Uh, Jumbo, the first elephant, Um, I suppose in England, if you were ever following some of the newspapers seven or eight years ago, there were two heritage pigs that escaped from an abattoir before they were going to be killed, and they became incredibly famous in England for the space of six months whilst they ran about the countryside. And couldn 't be caught, and so they were sort of free, free the Tamworth too. There are lots of, lots of animals become famous. so they have documents, they have stories, they have people who know things about them. And I have a number of famous gorillas that I 'm interested in, one of them not so far away, in Melbourne, in the Melbourne Museum what is there's a whole family group in the Melbourne Museum that date from the 1860s when Paul Dushayu, the African explorer, brought specimens back to Europe and Frederick McCoy was very keen to purchase those specimens from London to show in the Melbourne Museum all the known skins from that explorer have disappeared except what you've got in Melbourne which is beautifully preserved and has been beautifully preserved for 180 years and is still on show. So there are particular individuals that are important that come into my story.
1: I think it really is a most intriguing question about how we think of li- the lives of non-human organisms, complex and, and possibly not complex or even inanimate as, as, as you were talking about earlier. Ian McCalman, tell us about what the, the work that you're doing currently and whether there are lives in that project.
3: Well, uh, I don't know whether to call it a biography. I am writing a kind of cultural and social history of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and I certainly think about it, in a sense, as biographical. Although, can you imagine anything more boring than a biography about how coral grows. Um, <laughs> takes a while, uh, and there's not a lot of drama. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an, a, the Great Barrier Reef, it seems to me, is an extraordinary phenomenon, modern phenomenon, a phenomenon of science, a phenomenon of history, uh, of of culture, it's a country in a in a in a way, it's a region, it's a place where people live, it's a huge tourist mecca. It's a very very complicated thing, and um, I suppose what I what I became interested in, partly as a result of this voyage in the in the Endeavour, was the fact that for Captain Cook and his men, this was a place of absolute and utter horror. Uh, one of the most terrifying places you could inhabit and a place they couldn't get out of fast enough. That was, not only, that was mainly because of its danger to their, to their ships and, of course, to generations of, of mariners after that. But also they found that they were frightened or, or hostile to some extent to, to the indigenous people they found the environment unattractive, barren, harsh, hideous in all sorts of ways. Banks thought of, of at least the barrier reef as a kind of anti-paradise in a way. And, and yet how do we think of it now? Um, you know, one of the great tourist attractions in the world regarded by so many people globally as an utterly sublimely beautiful place, a place that is completely fascinating, but also now, a place that 's not it 's not really that it 's a danger to the existence of humans, as it was when Cook was sailing. We are a danger to its existence it 's now become the fragile thing so I suppose i 'm trying to tell the story of a kind of changing imaginary of the reef. And I, the only way I can think of doing it in the end is by doing a whole series of a series of microbiographies of people who have had, I think, formative um, uh, kind of um, influences on the global history of the reef. It includes some Americans, it includes English, it includes um, Australians, it includes indigenous people, A whole variety includes kind of romantics and scientists, um, tourist uh, uh, people and so on. So it is a biography, but it's a biography in some ways, I think, like your gorillas filtered through their relationship with people.
1: Before I invite some questions uh, from you, the audience, uh, and as you gather your questions, let me ask one final one myself of both both Janet and Ian, and that is that is about about last year, about two thousand and nine, the the great anniversary, and I'm, I'm sure in some ways you're both relieved that it's over, it must have been particularly taxing in, in, in many ways. But, but um, Ian, perhaps we can start with you. Your, your, there were many events that I know you went to. Highlights and most challenging moment of the Darwin year?
3: Lowlights.
1: <laughs> Highlights and lowlights.
3: Um, it was enormously challenging. Actually, believe it or not, I mean, I began my book not realising at the time that there was a, this... Uh, commemoration about to occur, I was quickly reminded by um, my editor here at Penguin and told therefore that, that that I must double the pace of production for the book. So that was the first problem. I, I pro- had to produce the book in at half the time I intended um, and kind of half killed myself in the process. It was, it, was a, it was wonderful in some ways to be involved in this enormous kind of global commemoration of Darwin with so many people and so many wonderful people, um, including uh, meeting Janet and hearing her lecture. She'd been a heroine of mine, never seen her before that. Um, and there were local, lovely local elements Frank Nichols was a, 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 was a key element in that, in organising very, very genial, thought-provoking and, I think, um, non-confrontational ways in which we explored, explored Darwin. But it was also a huge jamboree and, you know, you did get a feeling that, of being very tired, um, a feeling that there were all sorts of people jumping on bandwagons, forgetting, reinventing Darwin, um, and you know, as though there hadn't been uh, the major biography um, of Janet's. Uh, there were people, also, it seemed to me, reproducing the the myths that we've all kind of struggled against: the myth that the Galapagos was the only informative thing about Darwin that that Australia was of no interest or value because he was grumpy at the time and so on and so on um, and so so I ended up with a very mixed feeling um, and you were we were we shared a podium on one occasion where Steve Jones the science writer and geneticist, got up yeah, and did should. a rant about yeah. uh, what, did he, what he you called... Shouldn't, you shouldn't say this. <laughs> Arts faculty <laughs> historians. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> so there were low lights as well as highlights.
1: <laughs> Janet Brown, some, some, some highlights perhaps. Oh, and, I, then, and then and I, I shall have, ask for oh, some questions. Okay. I found it a wonderful year.
2: I'm sorry, Ian. I just loved it. Uh, it was such a thrill to see people talking about Darwin, and I got to go to lots of lovely places, as I'm sure you did as well. And so I loved the Jamboree side of it. I found it awfully interesting as well, really, as a historian or as a sociologist, to see that many of the celebrations were initiated by biologists, so that... Um, sense of Darwin being important to biology as we know he is was being made public that biologists were coming out of their labs or their field stations and saying this was a great theory, this works, this is where I've spent my life um, following it and I, I liked that, I liked to see biologists say this is what I do this is my hero so there was lots of that and I suppose if one was going to still be alive in 50 years' time, we'd look back on it as historians and we'd see that 2009 as a celebratory year was distinctly different from, let's say, um, 1909 or 1959 when there were celebrations. So the whole history of commemorations is a very interesting thing.
1: Thank you so much. It was, it was indeed the world's biggest birthday party, as I think your colleague Stephen Shapen told, uh, called it at, at one point. So I know amongst us here that there are some notable biographers uh, amongst us. I would love to hear from you. I would love to invite some questions from you in particular to uh, Ian and Janet. But can I open up to, to the audience? Who would like to ask Ian McCalman or Janet Brown a burning question about biography, about science, about Darwin. Um, well, you actually... We, we are being recorded, so, so please forgive us. There's microphones um, involved. Um,
2: as academics um, writing biographies, um, one would assume that you're trying to appeal to a wider audience, not just um, fellow academics or, or people that you know, do post courses and so on and so forth. Just a little louder, please. Sorry. Um, when you're actually approaching um, trying to write a biography, are you, are you conscious of of using language that may sort of alienate people who don't quite have the academic understanding? Um, are you conscious of your literary style? And do you get help from people as
4: to how, you, how one writes to appeal to a wider audience?
2: Um, well, let me sing the praises of editors in, in presses, in, in the companies that publish books. They really do know what they're talking about when they tell you this isn't going to work. And their mine, I'm sure Ian's was as well, and Alison's also written a biography, was very helpful in finding the tone and in a rather wonderful euphemism that perhaps spreads more than just science biographies of finding your voice which I found a lovely expression. Um, so, yes, you have to think very very hard you 're addressing a different audience you have to you have to try and talk in a way that is um, not patronizing but nevertheless clear and it takes a lot of work
3: Yes, I think that 's absolutely true and in some ways, you know a model for us are the very people we 're writing about um, darwin darwin 's Voyage of the Beagle is such a riveting, accessible book. I mean, it's got ideas in it, but it's it's absolutely compelling. And and even the Origin, which is a very uh, very difficult book in some respects, it nevertheless was written without footnotes and was written, as he said, as one long argument. Um, and so, if one takes one inspiration from the people you're writing about, or Thomas Huxley, one of the greatest popular uh, writers, popular science writers of all time, I believe, who should have a look at his lecture on a piece of chalk um, which uh, which is absolutely riveting lecture about the whole history of geology, so yes, I mean, that was an aspiration, and uh, Janet is absolutely right. I mean, I had two filters really my my agent who 's a very tough um, New Yorker and who writes um, beside almost everybody I mentioned who he question mark you know or whatever or whatever, um, and so that was there 's that filter and then the second filter was a, a wonderful um, editor here in, in Ben Ball at Penguin, who I think is brilliant, brilliant editor, um, and who greatly enhanced the book so so yeah, we, we do need these people editors are some of the greatest sort of unsung. undervalued heroes of the whole literary business I think Please Uh, Thanks very much for your works,
5: um, your biographies and your work on history of science Um, I'd dearly like to know what Charles Darwin would think about the burning issues of today those giant elephants in the room of climate change and species Please just
1: hold the microphone right up to your I'm sorry Thank you
5: the the giant issues of today of climate change and species extinction, uh, resource use, uh, potential overpopulation, Malthusian-type things. And I wonder whether your works of biography and history of science um, could bring him to life today Uh, uh, and drawing on other authors as well uh, about those issues, because I think his clarity of thinking, and his sensibilities, even his ones that we now think are somewhat old-fashioned or racist. Uh, And do you think that could be possible? Because there's at least half a dozen burning issues today that lots of people need to know about in terms of their science, amongst other things.
2: Okay. Uh, I don't want to be flippant about that serious question, but last year, Darwin was recreated several times on panels You know, somebody with a beard and a cloak, to answer those kinds of questions from the floor and I, myself, I think on a population explosion for example, he would think that was entirely natural that's something that would just happen Extinction was something that he thought was a natural part of the evolutionary process. He lived in a world where the extinction of organisms by human intervention, human action, was very rare. So that that would be a real shock to him coming back today to see how much has changed that most extinctions now are because of us. So he would be horrified as as to the way we're, we're handling that. If Darwin came back today, the one thing that I think he would be that it was inconceivable in the 19th century would be a conservationist. He didn't talk about conservation at all. But I think if he was here now, he would be very concerned to push that.
3: Yes, uh, it's a a good question and I have talked and listened to passionate scientists, including John Chappelle, uh, talking to me about how so much of what Darwin did was Prophetic, in a sense I mean not in, a, in an absolutely literal sense he couldn't possibly have predicted what was going to happen but that his extraordinary fertility of mind and his open mindedness I mean he was people say you know he was a racist but an incredibly tolerant man by the standards of his day and for any of us to say that we're uh, incredibly tolerant by the standards of our day is something you could be you know, a, a subject for congratulation. But I think the thing that would perhaps he'd find most distressing um, after all that he'd gone through and seemed to have overcome is to find that there is now in the United States a, a creationist movement w- which. Which has uh, um, turned him into the figure of the devil, for which he has become a kind of synecdoche for everything, um, you know, everything uh, that is gross and wrong with with the world for a, for a large number of people, and I think that would be deeply shocking to him. Um, he was not a man who enjoyed confrontation in any way. And uh, although I, I don't think he was, uh, I don't think he was a believer himself. Um, in the end, he was very um, comfortable with the fact that people were believers and able to uh, able to support evolutionary ideas and ideas of natural selection. So I think that would have
6: been the biggest shock. Please. Many novelists, when they write, experience the fact that minor characters whom they never thought about start to become more important and many novels are like biographies did either of you find that?
2: oh yes I loved all the other people in my stories I became very fond of Darwin's captain Robert Fitzroy who I think has had a terrible bad press
3: yeah yeah
2: Um, (laughs) And he was difficult, he was autocratic, he had all kinds of problems, but there are several letters where a wonderful, warm, funny personality came out. So I just fell for the captain. Um, His wife as well. I...
3: I was just thinking, Janet. It's, uh, it's the, the uniform, you <laughs> know. That's right. <laughs> One of the things that happened, you'll recall, when Di- when Darwin was um, first encountered, Fitzroy and his sisters were reading Jane Austen, yes. um, and so they they nicknamed um, they nicknamed him Wentworth. Yes. <laughs> yes, a handsome man. A handsome man. Yes, I love the minor figures, and I also love what novelists have done with them. I'm a Roger Macdonald, um, yes. you know, Mr. Darwin's shooter is a fantastic book. I'm also a great lover of um, a short story writer, American short story writer called Andrea Barrett, who writes. Um, ship fever, fever it 's a wonderful book, and others which are which are tend to be short biographical stories about about real people but but they are novelized they 're fictionalized um, sometimes they 're recognizable sometimes they 're not but they 're wonderful um, insights into figures in figures in, in history and figures in science who are not always the central figures that she, including women people who are not uh, don't feature you know, conspicuously but who are crucial in many of, many of the ways that ideas come into being and circulate.
1: Mr. Darwin's shooter, what an amazing book that is. It's one of my, my most favourite reads and was republished last year and I highly recommend it. Greg Murray.
7: Um, in most um, biographies of Darwin, there seems to be this at least two Darwins present. There's the sort of young Darwin who's the hunting-shooting, like slightly irresponsible Darwin, and then he seems to step on the beagle and become this, incre- or oh, at some point become this incredibly meticulous researcher with this amazing, de- amazingly detailed power of observation. And then, of course, he goes on to write, all, you know, seems to read everything ever written in the 19th century and produces this amazing work. Obviously, there's a whole series of steps between those two Darwins, or is there a lot of that second Darwin in the youthful Darwin?
2: Mm. Well, now, this is a big question as to whether people are always the same through their lifetime or if we can allow them transformative changes. And I think with Darwin... There is a Darwin who is absolutely the same from the very earliest times that we know about him right through to the end, and that's the uh, considerate, modest, loving family man. And then I I believe, as you've indicated, that there are other Darwins running on top of that, and there's a major change on the Beagle voyage. He himself says... It has altered my whole career, my entire career. And it did. And, and there's nothing more to say for it than that, that he, he, over the five-year period, he became a different person.
3: That's right. I mean, it's a great question. I'm, and I've sometimes wondered, you know, those, those novels that um, do, do a kind of hypothetical hypothetical history, what if, and I've often wondered what if Darwin hadn't gone on the Beagle, had become a clergyman, married, you know, and uh, would he have become, would would that incredible fertile mind have somehow broken through, not necessarily to produce the origin, but to produce amazing science, or would he have, you know, just potted away? Um, I really don't know. I mean, it's a fascinating question, but I think Janet's absolutely right. The extraordinary opportunity that the Beagle offered him, I mean, something like us being offered the opportunity um, without any very little prior experience to get in a a spaceship and go to Mars Um, and then imagine how um, that, or, or to some other planet, it was less known than Mars, um, how that might have altered our altered our being i mean the the fertility of his speculation and his, the curiosity you can 't imagine it that it wasn 't there in the child um, but but because he was he, he himself saw himself as a bit of a you know a bit of a hopeless case, and others uh, and others around him didn 't see him as in any way wonderful. means that really we don 't know you know the, the curious child the the fertile speculator, but one guesses that it 's there somewhere
2: yes it's, it's, there are some biographies of other people, and i 'm afraid i can 't cite chapter and verse here that show the child. Developing into the man who is the same person. Uh, there's a teleology, a kind of a yeah. narrative arc where it's the same person just unfolding uh, their skills and their talents. And I think, actually, a story about Darwin is slightly different, that it's not just an unfolding of talents. There are genuinely... Unexpected opportunities offered to him that he grasps, that he takes. So I believe there's quite a lot of personal agency in that life story that he creates his life after he's had that experience.
1: Who has the microphone? Oh, John Gascon. Yes, is that John? Okay.
6: I not it then. Okay. Well, as you both know, there's studies of, say, Newton's biographies and. The general theme is the biography reflects the period. Brewster's vast, um, quite detailed research biography reflects things that were going on in Victorian times in relation to science and religion and so forth. I mean, What I'd like you to sort of just comment on is, is scientific biography destined always to be seen against the period? Or the fact that now in relation to Darwin... We have, as far as we can tell, pretty well everything that he wrote. Does that put the biographies now into a different category? Is it the case that you can break out of this almost sort of relativist syndrome where the biography, when somebody looks at it later on, is seen as much about the age as about Darwin or Newton or whatever else it might be? Shall we get that?
5: Yes. Yes.
2: Great. Thank you, John. Um, John's question hinges on the uh, notion that we're all children of our age, so that every biography that's written tends to reflect the concerns of that period. And you can certainly see it in the biographies of Newton, for example, over the last 200 years. And you can see it in the biographies of Darwin, too. So Ian and I, and other biographers, Desmond and Moore, are part of a late uh, 20th century vision of what science was. And we have very consciously tried to put our person, our man, in social context because we're a social contexty time. That's what we're interested in. So it may well be that in 50 years' time there are completely other issues. Maybe there'll be a swing back to um, psychological development. So I think there'll be lots of other biographies of Darwin that in 20 years' time take completely different issues, and they'll look back on me. They won't look back on Ian um, with despair, but they they'll won't look back, back on me. not look back on me at me all. <laughs> 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 no, no, it's the dis- it was the despair, I was going to
3: say. Um,
2: they will look back at Ian with interest, because he's a multi-person biography, but they'll look back on me and they'll say, well, you know, she was real 1990s. <laughs> I, I think that's just in the nature of the work. I really do.
3: It's a fascinating question, and coming from a very, very fine biographer, a fine biographer of Banks and of Cook, um, I, I think it's an intriguing question. I'd really like to know John's um, own feeling about this. It uh, because I mean his books are. Wonderfully contextual, in the sense that the that take the period immensely seriously, you can understand Cook and you can understand Banks in a larger imperial context better in in John's books than in anybody's. And so, in that sense, I think that somebody who's taken the context immensely seriously, whether or not. It and we reflect our own age. I think it's probably inevitable that we do, but it's always hard to self-analyze the degree to which to which you do. One thing that is inevitable is that one becomes passe, and that the ideas that you've put forward are either demolished or very or kind of laid aside gently, uh, and people find other things to say. I mean, it's already very evident. Um, and apropos of the question earlier, it's all very evident, I think, that people are, are interpreting Darwin much more ecologically and Wallace much more ecologically than they have been in the past. That is, they see them as fathers of, of conservation and ecology, even when um, there's precious little evidence that they were. I mean, it's a way of, of, of re-angling them Put it giving a different angle of vision, which is very much a preoccupation of our own time.
1: So, two final questions, yes, please.
3: Um, thank you both for your uh, time here this evening.
7: Uh, two points, perhaps, Professor Brown, you 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 wanted to ask Darwin why he was so ill, mm. perhaps, and uh, Professor McCallum, you've, you've uh, you you um, touched upon his his diffident nature and his his reticent. Uh, nature to, to publish, uh, even though he went on the voy- on the Beagle in the eighteen thirties, but didn't publish till eighteen fifty nine. Uh, one one point that I think is, may have been glossed over this evening is that is the the actual implication, the power of his ideas, that that is it, it, it lays waste to the, the the Genesis myth of of, of creation. Um, he, in his own personal life, his his wife was a was a devout Christian. And, and there's a letter isn't there where, where at the, at the bottom, uh, addressed from Emma to, to Charles, he writes in his own hand, "Long have I cried over this." Um, is it the nature of the of the idea itself that that affect his psychological uh, state? If you could comment, one on first on that, and on on the second one, uh, you, Professor McCalman, you you said that he would be shocked or aghast that. So many, particularly in America, will still go back to this almost pre-Victorian idea of, uh, of, of creationism. D- do you feel that your biographies uh, are contributing to the argument at all, or, or um, try to paint him less, at as the antichrist, and uh, uh, the, the, that, his, that his ideas are, are an idea of a, of a, of a human being and <clears throat> uh, are examples of, of the pure scientific mind going to conclusions that we as humans might find unwelcome but it's, it's the nature of the business anyway and we should uh, get on with it. Do you want
3: to go first on that? Oh, sure. sure. Well thank you. I mean I, I think that's a very good question and it, it's a fascinating one and one you have to come to grips with if you're dealing with Darwin and always will. Um, I mean I, I, I do think or at least I tried to convey the fact the fact against the sense of the fundamentalists that have got hold of Darwin. I mean, the, the, the arguments in his own day, the well-known arguments in his own day, at least in Britain in particular, were not with fundamentalists. I mean, they were people who were certainly arguing with him and were arguing about creation and design, but um, not in an absolutely literalist way using the Bible against him. Um, and so, in a sense, he was involved in a real debate where there was a spectrum of religious people from um, from very liberal positions and his own his own wife came out of a liberal i um, mean she was born a unitarian Unitarians were you know often said were you know a feather bed to catch a falling christian um, so um, you know he already had a kind of liberal, uh, liberal background in it with, with regard to his wife, So, so I think that, that that is the difference. He was dragged um, not not reluctantly but just inevitably that 's the feeling you get towards um, a belief in the naturalistic operation of the, of the laws of as he saw it. The, of natural selection and sexual selection, um, I think he did not exult in it. It was very painful to him personally, and it was it, were, it was a case of someone having to, you know, reap the personal and social implications of ideas that he just simply felt went there. I don't know if Janet yes, um, well,
2: agrees. I I'd support what Ian said absolutely, and um, particularly with regard to Darwin's relationship with his wife and her religious beliefs, which I think possibly have been rather exact... I think the contrast between the two of them has been somewhat exaggerated over the last five years or so, because it makes a stronger story. Um, I don't think for a moment that biographers want to twist the facts we are confined by the facts but you can present them in such a way that they make story X or story Y and to have Darwin and his wife in opposition about the theory that is being produced makes a a more tense story and a more interesting dramatic story. You'll see that in the movie Creation which is grounded in truth. But my own personal view of Darwin's wife's belief system was that it was strongly held and that she progressively became less religious. There's a couple of small remarks about that in her later life. But that she loved her husband and she wasn't going to let that hold him back. So there, there are some very beautiful letters exchanged between them where she talks about her, um, her sorrow at his lack of faith and her anxiety that the religious doctrine says that people who doubt don't go to heaven. Uh, and she writes to him in a really beautiful, simplistic f- framework, I'll be very sorry if we don't meet in the afterlife. So there are some terrific... Historical things here for, his, for, for biographers, but our duty is to contextualise them and not to turn them into modern crises.
1: Because it's not a modern story, I think is what I would like to say. Yes. So a final question from Will Christie, the great Romantic poet scholar, slightly outside your period here, Will, no, I ask but a, also a biographer. Surprise, surprise!
4: I want to ask a literary question: to write a biography. Of a book, of uh, the Barrier Reef, or of apes, is experimental in the sense that it's bringing a conventional form to an unconventional biographical subject. What can we do with biography itself? What sort of experimentation would you anticipate with biography itself? I've got a friend who can't read biographies because they're all the same and because they always die in the end. (laughs) They are so predictable. And it genuinely upsets him. It's not as if he doesn't care. He cares too much, and so he can't read biographies. They upset him. But they're always predictable. What can we do to keep faith with the biographical subject but somehow vary the form? It is a terribly predictable literary form partly because lives are predictable, they do end in death, but surely there are things that we can do with biography as a form that might, in fact, in some ways, better keep faith with the biographical subject, even though they might run against some of the standard expectations.
3: Well, I want to remind you that my book begins with Darwin's death. Um, yes. But, uh,
1: and you've got four people. <laughs> And what a stroke of genius, I have to say, (laughs) Ian (laughs) McKelman. Absolute stroke of... authorial genius, then.
3: No, no. Um, The the interesting thing is that I think there's a lot of biographical speculation going on now. That is the experimentation, that that biography is being pushed and pulled in all sorts of uh, ways. Autobiography is often... The autobiography of the... Writer of biography often now penetrates the biography quite openly. There, is, there, is, there are indigenous uh, biographies uh, coming out of Australia and the Pacific and the and United States which are much more collective. Uh, their sense of writing about themselves as belonging to a community rather than as isolated individuals. Um, there is uh, an old biography which I adore. Um, by J uh, Ackerley written in the 1930s with the improbable name My Dog Tulip which is about his Alsatian dog and it's one of the most extraordinary biographies ever written Um, so that even at that point the the biography I think was not predictable. Um, It didn't even end in the dog's death um, let alone, let alone the other elements about it, I think that I think that biography is is something I mean we have terrific biographers here there 's an experimental biographer I can see in my gaze of vision, Mark McKenna, who will and is producing a biography of Manning Clark that will be very different from any biography that 's gone before and who has thought immensely hard about um, experimental writing and about how you capture the extraordinary fluidity of Manning Clark, who was one of my teachers. Um, so over to you. Yes,
2: but it, it's a fascinating question, and w- I think many of us here have thought about that, that possibly one of the defining characteristics of a biography is that it is, is, uh, it's a narrative. It's got an arc. It's, it has a beginning, a middle, and end trajectory, and that you can't get out of that without becoming something else. But I would like to recommend, uh, as Ian has already mentioned, that sometimes biographies can be very telling if they go backwards, if they start with a point in someone's life and then go to the beginning. And I'm thinking here of an experimental Biography that was published in England a couple of years ago about a down and out who lived in Cambridge, England, that was called Kevin, A Life Told Backwards. And the author met the person outside a. a, a do we have Woolworths over here? Yeah. Outside a Woolworths store in this market town, as a down and out, drunk, drugged, and explored his life backwards to what was it as a boy that would lead to this kind of life. And I think this is a tremendously evocative way of thinking about lives because lives don't go in a straightforward way. So it's a really interesting point you've brought up. Thank you.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, what a what a delightful evening it's been. I hope you agree. I have to say it's been a real pleasure to have... Janet Brown here as a guest in Sydney and in Australia. Lovely to have you via Cambridge, London, and the other Cambridge. Please do come to the Southern Oceans again, Janet Brown. Uh, and of course, our colleague Ian McCalman, one of the great historians and I and one of Australia's great non-fiction writers, I'm sure you would all agree. So please join me in thanking Ian and Janet. <laughs>